Coming up today, Natasha reveals the latest trick to lure people back to the office, and Amit tells us about his new book. You're listening to The Wire Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business, and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Natasha Vanell. Hello. Amit Kawala. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when France's language watchdog announced new French terms for various video game related English words and phrases. Esports is now Jeu Video de Competition, Streamer has become Jeu Animateur en Direct, and Cloud Gaming is Jeu Video Un Nuage. Trayvon. This was also the week when the first raspberries picked by a robot are set to reach UK supermarket shelves. Fieldwork Robotics, a spin-out company from the University of Plymouth, has used four armed two million pound robots to harvest the berries round the clock in polytunnels in a field near Odemira in southwest Portugal. It was also the week when Shanghai ended its strict COVID lockdown. The lockdown was due to last nine days, but was extended to 65, with people not being able to leave their homes and many facing food shortages. And finally, this was the week when Australian researchers found the world's biggest plant. They used genetic sequencing to confirm that a large underwater meadow off the coast of Western Australia is in fact a single organism. It is three times the size of Manhattan. Three times the size of Manhattan. What does it look like? Like grass, underwater grass, I guess, but covering a very large area. I see. So is... Would a field count as a single organism? Only if the grass in the field was genetically identical. I think, I think it's all cloned from the same thing, so it kind of counts as a single organism. I'm not entirely sure on the logistics of why this counts as a single organism, whereas a, a field of grass would not. But uh, I suspect that the grass has got like multiple different species kind of mixed in with it and stuff. All right. Other than the excellent facts, what did we learn this week? Natasha? Um, I actually learned a fact. <laughs> I'm Go joking. Um, so, as you might know, this week is uh, Jubilee week and the UK government, in all of its wisdom, has decided that the trendy and future-proof thing to do is to bring back imperial measurements. And I wanted to ask you guys a question because we're all too young to remember them, I hope, on this podcast, but our listeners might get this right. So, do you know how many inches there are in a foot? 12? 12. 12. All right, well, you've done better than I have. That's fine. <laughs> 12 is, is right. Um, that's, that's fine. I hope that you weren't going to get that right like I did. But that's, that's okay. Um, I, I learned today that the other measures that used to be used in the past that I feel, seeing as we're bringing back Imperial, should also return. Um, my favourite one is a horse. So the... It's, the length of a horse, which is 2.4 metres, and you can measure everything in horses. And there's also another measurement called the Morgan, which is not spelt like our colleague Morgan, but with an E rather than an A at the end. And that is the size of a field that one ox can eat. And that's how you measure the size of a field. And yeah, that's that's the fact that I learned. I mean, on, on the horse one, surely you could measure anything in terms of anything, right? Which is, which is why in news reports you often hear people refer to an area approximately seven times the size of Wales. I mean, it doesn't help no. me understand how something 
how big something is related so to the ho- horse. horse. <laughs> so a horse is you normally use it in horse racing, right? Which makes sense if you think about it, right? But yes. you don't use it outside of that. And I think why not make it mainstream? So I could say I'm like a half of a horse. Right. Or Do you see what I mean? Yeah, or I'm like, about I'm about nine hundred and sixty two horses away. I'll be there in twenty minutes. Exactly. Perfect. Yeah. How many Morgans do you think that sea meadow is under uh, off the coast of Western <laughs> Australia? Would, would an ox be able A lot. Yeah, because it's, it's so you, you, till, you till the field and then the ox would be able to eat the field. It's all very complicated. But anyway, I feel like saying things like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm like, you know, I've got a Morgan's size garden is like a cool thing that should be a thing. And I do wonder if our listeners have any like obscure measurements that they might want to share with us podcast at wired.co.uk that the inbox has been very very quiet of late maybe it's because we're asking people to send in entirely ridiculous things but if like natasha <laughs> you have um, an affinity for very old forms of measurement podcast at wired.co.uk send in your favorites amit what did you learn this week I learned that the London Underground has got its own species of mosquito, according to some researchers. So uh, this subspecies of mosquito is thought to have colonised the tube system during the Second World War when people took shelter there and has since evolved to be genetically as distinct from its surface-dwelling ancestors. Amit, are you reading like a really good book of facts at the moment? Because I, I feel like every time we have you on the podcast, you're just absolutely nailing it. I just have a good eye for these things. Uh, and I definitely just don't go on Reddit 15 minutes before the podcast starts. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, um, it's serving you well. Thanks very much for that. All right. On with the show. Our first story this week, Natasha, in the long-fought battle to get some office workers to head back in. Companies are getting creative, this time with plants. Yeah. So obviously, if you are an office worker, you might have enjoyed in the past good perks um, while you're working in the office. My favourite perk that I've ever received was Cake Wednesdays, where people would battle over what seemed to be four slices of cake for about 50 people. (laughs) And if you were lucky enough to get it, it was like the best thing ever. Um, But however, now that office workers are able to stay at home or go in just a couple days a week, a lot of the perks that you might have been offered that might be better than Cake Wednesdays seem rather irrelevant. Um, If you go to any office and a lot of them have very little natural light, they might have a really boring kind of colour scheme, they might have no views outside, Um, or if you're (laughs) near a house, they might have a suspiciously (laughs) horrible, terrible kind of stale air um, and pong. Um, This this obviously means that for a lot of people who have been enjoying work in the comfort of their own homes, the idea of going back to an office, even if it is part time, is not very appealing. Um, That's why companies are trying to provide the one thing that many workers who live in cities simply don't have, which is a whopping great garden to work in. I should add or expand just for people listening who aren't familiar with our contracted place of work, which is Vogue House in, in central London. Natasha has always had something against the smell of the building. Um, it smells which, bad. Frankly, I find charming, um, but that isn't, <laughs> that isn't an opinion that's universally held. Anyway, um, to, uh, to build on, sorry, Cake Wednesdays, was it? Yeah, that was great. There was, was a brief really period, good. Matt Burgess, you might remember, in Wired's dim and distant history where we had Cheese Fridays. That was actually a very, very short-lived thing, but I think we should definitely bring it back. Did just one person bring in some cheese one day, and then you called <laughs> it much. cheese fries? <laughs> yeah, and then they left. 
Oh no, that's sad. Can anyone better Cheese Fridays or Cake Wednesdays? No. Oh gosh, it's so sad, isn't it? I hear about all the people that I know getting really cool perks, you know, and that's like the best I've ever got. Genuinely. Well, the, the two weeks of Cheese Fridays were, were truly uh, a career highlight. Um, but as, as you say, um, offices perhaps don't have the luster that they used to. Um, and this idea of putting in whopping great big gardens is kind of interesting. So if you're contracted to work in a big, expensive city, then it likely means that you have to fork out quite a bit on rent or for a mortgage, right? So that you can you can come into that office that maybe you don't want to spend a huge amount of time in anymore. Um, if they put in a garden, that's great, but it's sort of a bit of a peace offering in a way because where you live likely doesn't have a garden or maybe doesn't have green space nearby. So it's a solution, but it's a solution to a problem that's been caused by your work situation. Yes, in order to uh, engage with this, you must not look too closely at the reasons why you might not have a lovely garden of your own to enjoy and instead have to work in a communal um, office garden. But, but, you're, but you're right. Basically, a, a, lot of, um, a lot of people don't have access to a, a garden at all. So one in eight British households have no garden. And that's according to the ONS. And in London, the average size of any garden is 140 square metres, which is just over half the size of a tennis court, if you want to sort of follow the thread of my random measurements. But you have to factor in there's loads of really whopping mansions in London that are owned by no one. Um, and obviously that people who work in an office very much um, don't own any of these spaces. So they skew the result of the average size a lot. Um, maybe that people working in offices might have, you know, a small balcony if they're lucky or a small garden. Uh, but a lot of people won't have a garden at all. Um, and this can affect people's productivity and well-being quite a bit. So inspiration at the best of times can be hard co- to conjure. But with the rising cost of living and the prospect of a recession, stress levels are very much through the roof. So the tension and the um, burnout that we were seeing during the pandemic has very much continued. Um, in April 2022, for example, going outside of the UK, almost half of Australian workers and almost half of Canadian workers have felt more sensitive to stress compared to pre-pandemic. And the LifeWorks Mental Health Index has found that 43% of Britons and 42% of Americans are in the same boat. Um, Now, we know for a fact, and there have been countless studies that show this, that time spent in nature, even as little as 10 minutes a day, can really help to offset the effects of physical and mental stress. So for companies thinking about investing in this kind of thing, it's it's not sort of, oh, we're going to do something really lovely and people will want to work in a garden or they'll want to walk around in a garden because that's a nice thing to do. There's a real productivity benefit to this. What there maybe isn't a productivity benefit to is thinking back to places I've work previously um some of them had roof terraces and i use the term very very loosely because they were big slabs of concrete with air conditioning vents um and broken furniture and lots of cigarette ends um people weren't meant to smoke up there but they did so it wasn't exactly an especially relaxing space or a nice space to spend any amount of time but the space was there it just wasn't particularly well used so thinking about this less cynically um people still need to go into offices people still want to go into offices so turning these nasty bits of concrete and unused spaces into nice green areas seems like a pretty good idea yeah, it does. I mean, I'm sure you guys are the same, but I worked at a particular publisher that had no windows and a very basement vibe. And it was lit so you didn't know what time of day it was. Another place, windows didn't open just in case you 
felt like, you know, having a bit of a jump out <laughs> in a desperate moment. Uh, so yeah, having a, a green space where you can work or simply walk around and eat your lunch can be a really, really huge bonus for people who are going into the office as hybrid workers or who are going back full full time. Uh, but you're right, the space has to be equipped for it. It's not sufficient to have, you know, a, t- a concrete terrace with nothing there but cigarette butts. You need to have, you know, an actual plan of what you're going to do and, and some trees and, you know, foliage and shrub- shrubbery and just some stuff for people to, to enjoy that, that will make it a nice and, and meaningful space, right? Um, there is evidence, though, that people do want this. So it's not like companies are sort of racking their brains and thinking, okay, we'll give them a few trees and maybe they'll come back and that'll be a good idea. There's global research by um, JLL, which is a commercial real estate services company, which found 41% of workers have put outdoor spaces in their top three expectations of a well-being oriented workplace. So the reality, though, is that we don't tend to have that so if you look at a lot of offices at the moment they don't really have any outdoor space at all a lot of them are in sort of very tall buildings or older buildings that don't have outdoor space allocated to them so only 25% of people have access to any outdoor space at work uh, and 17% which is even lower have access to a place where they can relax so so basically the the, the spaces available are, are really sort of sparse um However, that doesn't mean if you have an office space and, and you're working in a company that, that has an office space that ha- doesn't have any outdoors, there's really no reason you can't do something about it anyway. So there's companies that have basically said we're going to transform part of the interior of our offices into rooftop gardens or we're going to just you know fill it full of stuff. So Deloitte, for example, installed a living moss ball and 7,000 plants in its London office, it has no outdoor space. Um, whereas Balderton Capital, um, which is a portfolio company, installed trees in its King's Cross HQ. Um, basically, green walls, indoor plants, make a jungle. Um, that that's kind of been the the result of of people going. We don't have any outdoor space, um, so we got to figure out other ways to do it. Um, however going back to your point of you know if you have an outdoor space you have to make it nice people have turned to kind of trying to fill it with meaningful things so rather than having an empty space with a couple of trees they've decided to do some interesting things with it so city bees for example which is something that um that they've worked on in, in germany in 145 sites um means that They've got 320 colonies of bees and bee boxes on roofs, which is really sweet. Um, And you can sort of help uh, take care of the bees. And, you know, it obviously creates a whole ecosystem. People put meadows on their roofs, Um, you know, making it sort of meaningful place for people to kind of actually have an activity to do rather than just sit around um, and look at, you know, the surroundings of the office, which might not be that inspiring. You failed to read out the German word for city bees, which, which I quite like. Startbienen. Um, I don't think... It, are you sure you pronounce that correctly? Because yes. I, I, I... Yeah, okay. I'm well, almost you know, certain. confidence is everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so bees, nice plants, giant walls of 7,000 moss plants. It, it all sounds fine but there's there's something that irks me a little bit about this kind of conflict between public and private spaces so it's all very well for employees of Deloitte let's say um, with their gigantic moss wall or it sounds like quite a strange thing but if all of these beautiful green spaces are hidden away literally in this case inside corporate headquarters or on roof terraces or on courtyards inside then the city as a whole kind of suffers, right? So in London, for example, there are lots and lots of really big office developments, and this isn't unique to London, that are off limits to the general public. So it's making nice spaces for the haves, but not for the have-nots. Yeah, 
And that's that's exactly right. And I totally agree that there are definitely opportunities to do something for the local community rather than just for the occasional office workers who happen to work there once or twice a week. And and that's that's the problem here. Right. People, when they when they create these office spaces, when they create these gardens, they don't necessarily factor in that there are people out there that could benefit from it that aren't exactly your employees. They sort of have this blinkered view of, you know, we'll, we'll do something for our own people. And, and there you go. A lot of the green spaces in London, we talk, talk about this specifically because we we live through it, that should be open to the public and enjoyed are very much hidden away hard to access because they're inside buildings so a really good example of this is London's Sky Garden which was created um, you know I think the people in the building were given a tax break because they said they were going to offer the Sky Garden to be open to the entire public and then it emerged that you had to have a ticket and there was like a really long wait for a ticket and people basically don't don't use it in the way that it was intended because it's just not possible to do that. Um, other spaces are sort of only open when you have the open garden scheme, which happens once a year in London. Um, you just don't, you're not able to access it. And there's nothing more frustrating than being able to see a garden and not being able to enjoy it. Um, however, hopefully this will soon start to change because how buildings interact with their surroundings is kind of climbing a bit higher on commercial landlords' agendas. So there's a bit of a demand for built environments. So Aura Space is a good example of this, Atelier Gardens, which give back in a sort of uh, deeper way to both the environment and the local community. So if you think of, of spaces like 105 Victoria Street, which is in the city, it'll feature an urban farm with community allotments. And there's a renovation in Nuveen's Manhattan office, for example, which includes vegetable plots for employee use and beehives. So... There is there there are efforts, slight efforts, small efforts to try to say, okay, if if I create a garden, um, can I help other people, not just my employees? Can it be a perk for the general community rather than just my people? And a perk for the bees. bees. More city bees, start beaning. So we've come a long way since the pandemic began. Flashy startups, so to speak, used to show off or the press used to write about gimmicky slides and ping pong tables and beer fridges as being great work perks. And to my mind, a nicely planted roof terrace is kind of an extension of that. It's a bit more wholesome, particularly if it's got bees, but fundamentally it's a bit of a fig leaf. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because you're right, right? You know, a lot of the perks that were sort of listed in the past seem a bit silly now. Uh, Ping pong tables specifically. I mean, if you spend one day in in the office, why would you be playing with a ping pong table? Doesn't make any sense. However, I don't think it is so much of a fig leaf (laughs) because if you think about it, it's more pertinent to have a nice office space or a nice place to work or a nice place to be than it is to have, say, I mean, I don't know, if you have a gym membership that's restricted to a gym near the office and you're only going to the office once a week, it it just doesn't work. Like a lot of the perks that we used to have, uh, or not us really, because we didn't have any, but other people used to have, <laughs> aren't really that relevant anymore. You know, free food um, seems to be the other thing that I've seen getting people in the office. So if you offer someone a roast dinner <laughs> for free every day, they might come in. Um, but, but it feels like gardens are kind of in that... <laughs> in that area um in that area of expertise where you go okay if we have to offer someone can we offer some, something that they don't have and gardens seem to be that um I, I feel though that the food thing only works if you didn't offer food before so for example condon asked if anyone's listening where to offer cake wednesdays i might be more likely to come in 
on a Wednesday. Um, but it is, it's, it's tricky, right, to find that, that, find that balance. I really don't think that anything can get people back to the office if they don't want to come back. Um, but I do think that this does help. Um, because it's true that if you have a good Wi-Fi connection and you're able to sit in a lovely swinging chair in like a cool rooftop terrace, you're more likely to want to go in and do that, especially if it's a sunny, nice day, than to be sitting at home looking out the window. Which we all are right now. It's notable that we are all <laughs> sitting in beautiful swing chairs on sunny terraces. Matt Burgess looks a bit like he's sitting on the floor right now. Um, he's sitting on the floor in his bedroom. It's sad that, it's sad that the I glamour, know the backdrop now. The glamour of the podcast. I just wanted to say that if someone offered me a free roast dinner every day, I'd think they were trying to kill me. That would not be good for my well-being. And probably not very good for productivity either. Sort of the gravy hangover that kicked in at about two, three o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, if, if people had to choose between bees and a roast dinner every day, would the bees win? Yeah, I mean, I think the bees would win, for me anyway. I don't think so. I, I, I would take being, being paid enough <laughs> to be able to afford my own garden over having a nice garden at work, oh, right? I mean, yeah, obviously, get your own garden, your own bees. You know, that, that would be the ideal, you know. Uh, really, I mean, they should go one step further and be like, we'll buy you all a garden individually. And that's how we'll show the perk to you, like you may... Yeah, it, it does. This does feel like the latest iteration and sort of uh, companies trying to justify their office space. It really does. Uh, that's, that's what it boils down to. They're, they've got long leases. Uh, they need to justify the use of it, especially in sort of um, very high cost areas of capital cities. And this is just the latest iteration of them trying to say, please come back so that we can justify using them. Well, not even companies, right? So not the companies that lease them. It's the building management companies that have these spaces that they need to try and maximise value from. If you don't have all of the top facilities that the the most wealthy companies are looking to pay for, then then you can't compete. All right. So what what work perks has your company offered to lure you back in? Are you now sold on flexible and hybrid working or have you gone full remote? Let us know how your working life has changed as a result of the pandemic. Are you keeping bees, for example? doesn't have to be bees. Could be anything. By emailing podcast at wired.co.uk. For our second story this week, we are looking at the polygraph test. So a hundred years ago this week, a woman called Anna Wilkins was driving home from a camping trip in the mountains near San Francisco when she and her husband were forced off the road by another car. It was the start of a wild police case, which is the topic of a new book by our very own Amit Katwala. Thanks, Matt. Yes, uh, so my book came out in April. It's called Tremors in the Blood, Murder, Obsession and the Birth of the Lie Detector. Uh, And it starts with this fascinating case. So uh, as you were saying, Anna and her husband Henry got pulled over, forced to the side of the road, and then um, basically held up at gunpoint. And in the ensuing struggle, Anna ended up getting shot. Um, And afterwards, Henry told police that, you know, it had been the bandit that had shot his wife when he tried to fight back and, you know, push back against him when when the guy tried to take his wife's jewellery. But later on, a slightly different picture started to emerge. And that's one of the things I look at in the book. So obviously there's quite a bit of drama in this individual story, but why did you pick something from a hundred years ago that obviously many people would never even heard about and probably forgot is long forgotten about by uh, the vast majority of people even 
distantly connected to the case. Yeah, so first off, it's a kind of mad true crime case with loads of twists and turns and car chases and shootouts and things like that. But the reason that I focused on it is because it was one of the first times the lie detector was used to try and solve a murder. So there had been one high-profile murder case before this that the lie detector was used, which was uh, the murder and kidnapping of a priest um, by this this guy who Natasha seems to think is innocent, which I think is quite funny. She maintains he's innocent Justice. despite all the evidence. <laughs> Justice for high tower. Um, but, but yeah, um, basically, yeah, it was the fir- one of the first times the lie detector was used to try and solve a murder. Um, the lie detector was also invented almost 100 years ago in 1921 um, by a rookie police officer called John Larson. This was part of a kind of flourishing of like the early days of scientific policing in Berkeley in California. So there was a police chief working in Berkeley who kind of was one of the first to bring in um, vehicles to policing. He brought in fingerprinting, he brought in gunshot analysis, and he also started hiring people from the University of Berkeley to work in the police department for the first time. So up until this point, policing had generally been done by like older, like less well-educated men, and they used quite quite brutal tactics to get information out of suspects and things like that but um Volmer wanted to bring in I guess a more compassionate and more enlightened way of policing and he thought the way to do that was to bring in more educated officers so um John Larson was one of these more educated officers and he had had set his mind on being a criminologist basically so he had already done a PhD in physiology and he wanted to become a police officer so he could get some real world experience um in order to I guess try and predict crimes before they happened um so the polygraph kind of rose out of this work um and out of like earlier work that had been done that had linked blood pressure to people telling untrue stories so a researcher at harvard had noticed that as people told untrue stories their blood pressure changed um so together volmer and larson worked on this machine that could track that blood pressure change and that change in pulse and like record it on a piece of paper so that it could then be used during interrogations. You could ask a suspect questions and you could record their blood pressure and pulse changes using a pen uh, and and this machine. And then afterwards you could go back and say, oh, well, okay, when they were talking about this question, their pulse changed in this way and that might be a sign that they're lying. Yeah, so it's quite interesting because at this time around the early 1920s, you've got um, the start of what is really, I guess, in some ways sort of data-driven policing and a lot of innovation within a police system that has been um, very much reliant on um, not having to provide huge amounts of evidence in their cases and, and, as you say, sort of involving a lot of sort of like brutal interrogation tactics and essentially not being sort of very professional in their manner. Um, And you've got this emergence of this early polygraph machine at the same time developed by people that are trying to, I guess, improve policing techniques and what the police can do and the evidence that they rely upon. So how is this really early, I guess, also sort of like a very DIY machine linked to this case of this couple driving through um, uh, California? Yeah, so as I alluded to at the top, so in the days after Anna died, it started to look like Henry might be lying. So there'd been this car chase and he had told police that the car that had been chasing them was red, but all the other witnesses that the police spoke to said it was blue. And then a couple of days after the murder, the police found two suspects uh, and they showed them to Henry in a police lineup and he said he didn't recognise either of them. Um, But then, you know, the press found out that he'd actually worked with one of the suspects a few years previously. So he was lying to police on two counts. And there were more and more cases of this as the kind of investigation twisted and turned. Um, So eventually they decided to see if this new machine that had just been invented, you know, right across the bay in Berkeley in California, this this case was happening in San Francisco. 
might be able to get to the bottom of this. So they, they called him in to do a lie detector test on him. There's a lot of uh, twists and turns in this case, and it really is quite dramatic at the time and um, must have made a huge amount of headlines and news uh, just because of the sheer sort of like craziness of what was happening with these individuals. Um, and we're not going to go into all of those right here because you'll have to buy Amit's book to uh, find out all of those details. But in this polygraph test, which is one of the, you say, yeah, one of the first big uses of the polygraph test in a active murder case, like what happened there? Yeah, so I guess first off, maybe it's useful to give a bit of background on how the polygraph is meant to work. So basically, it measures your blood pressure, your breathing rate, and then later iterations also measure your sweat or your galvanic skin response. And what it looks for is a difference between your response to control questions like, is your name Henry? And your response to target questions like, did you kill your wife? And the idea is that you should be, if you're lying, you should show more of an emotional response to the target questions and that therefore you're... That, that difference will show up on the pulse and the blood pressure and the sweat response on the polygraph chart. But there is kind of a big problem with this. And th- this is the problem with all kind of forms of lie detection that have been invented since then. And it's that there's no single telltale sign of lying that works for everyone all of the time. When you talk to um, researchers in the kind of deception detection space, they refer to this as this this kind of holy grail of this Pinocchio's nose, right? You know, Pinocchio's nose grows longer every time he tells a lie. But... That's not true of everyone. And even if the polygraph works on some people, it won't work on everyone all of the time. And there's no way of telling those two groups apart. You can't tell whether someone's, you know, blood pressure or pulse is going up because they're lying or because they're worried about being caught, you know, being you know convicted for something they didn't do. People can get stressed for all sorts of reasons. And there's really no way that a machine can tell the cause of someone's emotional distress. All of that means that Henry Wilkins was able to pass the polygraph test that was conducted on him in the wake of his wife's murder. Um, And the argument that I make in the book is that this case represents one of the polygraph's first kind of big failures. It had been around for about um, a year and a bit by this point, and it had been the sort of story of unprecedented success. It had solved thefts at college dorms, it had solved murder cases, but this was the first time it really stumbled and really failed to get to the truth or the apparent truth about what had actually happened in this case. And as a result, the suspects in the case walked free and that had really deadly consequences, which um, you have to have to read the book to find out a bit more about. Yeah, and as I'm sure many listeners know, like the, the polygraph, also known as the light detector, is still very much around today. Um, it's used by governments and police forces around the world and um, various different investigations. We've seen it on TV in multiple uh, instances in sort of like reality TV sort of shows to try and uh, weed out whether people are lying on some things. But at the heart of it, there is still this underlying tension that the science doesn't necessarily back up um, the, the results that people are seeing on the test it's easy to get around uh or not easy but it's possible to get around sort of lie detection tests um but that obviously is something that we've started to know more about over time but even when these very first early prototypes were happening and these first um lie detection tests were starting to be commercialized there was there were a lot of concerns from the people that created them as well so how did we sort of get from uh, these these very early models to where we are now and it's uh, with the lie detection test being a very sort of commonly known thing yeah, it's kind of amazing, really. So John Larson, who was the police officer who kind of came up or was the driving force behind the invention of the polygraph, really very quickly started to regret what he'd done, what he'd created. He thought of the machine as sort of a Frankenstein's monster. And he spent the rest of his life sort of trying to undo some of the damage that had caused. But 
you know, by the time he'd like opened Pandora's box, if you will, it was it was sort of too late because the polygraph was already growing in popularity. Um, and that's thanks partly to a guy called Leonard Keeler. So Leonard Keeler was a high school student in Berkeley and an amateur magician and a, just kind of like a charismatic young guy. And he was obsessed with the polygraph. Um, and he was like Larson's protege, I guess, in the early days of the machine. He helped him refine the machine. He helped him, um, he, helped, he helped sell it and he helped him conduct tests and things like that. But it was Keeler who kind of spread it beyond academic circles and made it a popular tool for policing kind of across America and across the world. And not just policing as well, but, you know, businesses, government departments and things like that. And the reason that it spread so quickly, I think, is because it was very, very like useful, even if it didn't actually necessarily get to the truth because of all these flaws with it. So police departments loved the polygraph because that meant they could get confessions before cases went to trial. Security services like the CIA or the proto-CIA and the FBI loved it because it meant they could collect collateral on their employees and their political enemies. Politicians loved it and still love it because it makes them look tough on crime. Um, And all of that means that there are still millions of tests being done a year um, in the United States and worldwide. And that's despite the fact that the polygraph has been repeatedly debunked. You know, some estimates put its accuracy as low as 65%. And with a bit of training, anyone can kind of learn to beat it. Yeah, and on those ways that people can beat it, like what 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 do people do to try and get around um yeah, these types of tests and the results that they're they're putting out? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different things. These are called countermeasures and they've been around since the nineteen forties or earlier. Um basically they work by exaggerating your response to the control questions so that when your pulse goes up on the target questions, there's no difference. So if you can get your blood pressure or your pulse to go up when you're telling the truth then when you're lying, the examiner won't be able to tell. Basically, that's the theory. So you can do that by pinching yourself. You can do that by clenching your muscles. You can do that by hiding a pin in your shoe and stepping on it to like give yourself a jolt of pain. Some people have tried to do it by, you know, drinking loads of coffee before a test or, you know, taking drugs. So they're just, they're just very like amped up and therefore the additional amping up when they're lying won't show up on the test. Um, yeah, there's loads and loads of different things. And those are just a few examples. Um, there's also like some people might just be immune to lie detector tests. They might not show any emotional response. You know, psychopaths, it's thought might just be immune to lie detector tests. Yeah, and it's uh, strange how people have very different uh, behaviours to to these instances. And I think one of the one of the things that sort of stood out for me and, and what I've discussed with other people as well in the past is sort of like this art of the lie detector test. So even though you're conducting a test taking a test you might and you might know that these uh, measures that are pointing out aren't necessarily accurate the sort of picture you paint in the book is that people that were taking that people that are conducting the question asking the questions were building them in, up into very sort of theatrical performances where they were trying to really sort of like just elicit a confession um, which doesn't necessarily rely upon the results of the test itself so if you get somebody to confess then you can potentially build on that as one piece of evidence or use it in court uh, going forward so that's like a really interesting sort of like uh, element to this as well just sort of how these tests are conducted and sort of the interrogation techniques really and as we've sort of seen in the last few years it's not just the polygraph now there are new forms of lie detection tests being created and the idea is as popular as ever really yeah so just to your first point like it's really subjective that's one of the big problems with the polygraph and it's all about the skill of the examiner rather than the efficacy of the machine and like uh, Keeler who kind of popularized the lie detector was as I said like an amateur magician and there was a lot of like 
I guess you'd call it like sleight of hand in the way that he extracted confessions from people, which I find is really interesting. And that's why like you see even data that gets collected today shows that different polygraph examiners will get wildly different results. Uh, and like there's huge discrepancies in how likely you are to pass a polygraph test depending on your you know gender and your ethnic background, regardless of whether or not you're telling the truth. And and that's true of the polygraph. And it's also true, as you say, Matt, of these new forms of lie detection that are being invented. So, you know, basically every new technology that's been invented over the last century, someone's tried to use it to detect lies. So there's been like voice stress analysis. There's been like uh, infrared cameras that try and measure facial temperature. Um, after 9-11, there was a lot of funding from the US government for brain scans like EEG and fMRI based forms of lie detection. Uh, there's lie detection that tries to look at your pupil dilation to see whether whether you're lying based on how hard you're thinking. Um, and then the latest development in the last sort of 10 years is AI-based lie detectors. So in the same way that the polygraph combined, you know, these three different measurements to try and create a, a way of tracking deception, AI is being used to combine multiple different measurements and give you like a single score based on how much it thinks you're lying. Um and I guess like one of the reasons I wanted to write the book and one of the reasons why I think it's sort of relevant for, for wired readers is that I wanted to draw a parallel between the polygraph and the problems with the polygraph and the problems with some of these new forms of lie detection that are gaining popularity today. There are, basically history is repeating itself in the same way that the inventors of the polygraph, you know, John Larson, August Vollmer and Leonard Keeler got too close to the people they were testing they you know abandoned their scientific impartiality they let fame and the pursuit of fortune kind of cloud their judgment that exact same thing is happening today and you see the exact same patterns being repeated and you also see governments kind of expanding their use of lie detection so the uk government is rolling out its use of the polygraph not shrinking it despite the fact that they know it hasn't doesn't work so i think to bring it back to the case we talked about at the start the case of henry wilkins like that should be a warning note um that case and the other cases that i look at in the book a warning note about this technology and these technologies and uh you know why we shouldn't be using them basically yeah and you've done a bunch of reporting on sort of like modern technologies around lie detection as well and have you taken a lie detection test at all like what um what what has that sort of like process been like yeah, so I took a, a Converse test, which is a, a test that uses your pupil dilation. Uh, and the theory is, so I had to I had to think of a number between two and nine. I had to write it down on a card, and then I sat in front of a computer, and the computer tracks your pupil dilation, because pupil dilation is proven to be a measure of cognitive load. So that's how hard you're thinking. And then you sit in front of the computer, and it flashes up a bunch of questions like, the number I am thinking of is two, or I am not thinking of the number six. And it kind of has all these like counterfactuals and you kind of click through them. And the theory is that the one, the you have to lie about the number you're thinking of. So I think I was thinking of the number seven. So when the questions about the number seven came up, I had to lie. And the idea is being that it it's, takes you slightly longer and you have to think slightly harder in order to suppress your urge to tell the truth. So that should show up in your pupil dilation. Um, so yeah, I took that test, uh, which was interesting. Um, but and again, you'll have to read the book to find out whether or not I'm passed. <laughs> a good final plug. I just wanted to ask as well. So having spent so long researching lie detectors, and obviously if you're in the business of trying to find out the truth or trying to get people to tell the truth, which we would hope is what the business of the justice system and, and policing is all about if it isn't corrupt, um, this seems like a, a, a bit of a no-brainer, right? Like, can technology solve this problem or are we always going to be presented with people who lie and not be able to tell if they're lying or telling the truth? Can we fix it with technology? 
the, pro- the problem is that the bar is so high, right? And this is the issue. So like, you know, some of these new companies claim to be like 85, 90% accurate, which, you know, even if that is the case, that's still not good enough because these are life and death decisions that we're talking about, right? Like you can't, you know, a, a 90% accuracy rate, I mean, it still means you get one in 10 wrong, which is a huge error rate for the justice system, right? It might be fine for like a lateral flow test because you can always do another one. But if you're sending someone, sentencing someone to death on the basis of that test, which as I write about in the book has happened with the polygraph, then that's a really, really high bar that you have to reach. And I'm not sure that we'll ever reach that bar. Um, ultimately, I think these technologies will find a home in policing and the justice system because of convenience rather than because of accuracy, maybe. It's a fascinating story, or lots of fascinating stories intertwined. If people want to buy the book, Amit, remind, remind us all, what's it called and where can they get it? It's called Tremors in the Blood, Murder, Obsession and the Birth of the Lie Detector. It is available at all good bookstores um, and uh, on Amazon as well. (laughs) (laughs) All good bookstores and horrible, horrible Amazon. Thanks very much for listening. Um, Get in touch with the show, podcast.wired.co.uk. If you picked up a copy of Amit's uh, Amit's book, we'd love to know what you think of it. Do get in touch. Thanks for listening. As always, we'll leave it there for now. Have a good week. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.